1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is founder of White Men as Full Diversity Partners, or known as WMFDP, Bill Proudman. Post-election, the U.S. is more divided and polarized than ever. Many are now calling for significant cultural shifts in the wake of Mr. Trump's win, a statement that some say is influenced by the exclusive picture painted by corporate America. The clear majority is white and male. There are just five black CEOs and 23 female CEOs on the Fortune 500 list for 2015. Bill Proudman, co-founder and CEO of White Men as Full Diversity Partners, a leading diversity process consulting consulting firm to Fortune 500 companies, says now more than ever, solidarity and courageous actions are needed to enact change. Bill Proudman and WMFTP have worked with Lockheed Martin, Coca-Cola, Starbucks, Microsoft, NASA, and many other companies to create sustainable and inclusive work cultures. Welcome to the show, Bill. Nice to have you on this morning.
2: Yeah, nice to be with you.
1: Well, according to you and my introduction, uh, we obviously have a big job ahead of us. And according to these statistics that I just read, we haven't been doing so well in terms of diversity in corporate America in the past. So I guess my first question to you is, how do you think it's even possible to create and sustain inclusive work cultures under a Trump administration?
2: Um, That's a great (laughs) opening question, Catherine. How is it (laughs) possible to do that under this administration? Um, That's to be seen. Uh, what I do know is that the companies the, and the courageous leaders that we've worked with, uh, some for as many as the last 10 years in our 20-year existence, uh, have made inclusion a priority and tied it directly to their business success because they know through direct first-hand experience that employees who feel engaged, heard, valued, and seen are going to give their all, and that adds value to whatever the business imperative or the business results that they and the organization are achieving or seeking to achieve.
1: Okay. That's the basis, I guess, or the mission that you surround yourself with your organization. And we were talking a little bit before the show, but you've been doing this for 18 years?
2: Yeah, it'll be 20 years in March.
1: So maybe we should talk about, you know I, I mean, I know I, that was sort of the introduction, my opening question, but maybe we should backtrack a little bit and talk about, as you say, um, for the past 18 years, we've been moving forward and in, in inclusion. Who, who does inclusion include, I guess? Well, who are we talking about in terms of corporate America? Because the statistics still don't look, look good in terms of, and I'll, I'll say particularly for women, how many CEOs of big companies are there of women? Not very many.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, it's an interesting, there's, there's a lot of mythology around inclusion and diversity, and, and actually for how it's been worked for much of the last 40 years, particularly in the United States, we've, you know, when we look, for example, Catherine, when you, when you bring up the issue of gender equity, it is fairly typical for men and women leaders to think of gender equity as synonymous with uh, how do we help women? If we're talking about racial equity, the, the same thing comes up. How do we help men and women of color? And there's a there's a really valid set of reasons about why that is because of some of the historical misrepresentation in our country over decades, if not centuries, et cetera, et cetera. And we've, companies have been working on that for 40 years, and as you've seen and had other guests talk about, the needle has barely budged. And I think that goes to the really valid question of why is that? Why can't we seemingly move that needle? And, again, I don't think there's a single answer to to that cause, I think it's, it's a, a number of sort of contributing factors, one of which is largely when we see inclusion is about some and not about others, that's a non, from our experience, that's non-sustainable. So in other words, uh, sort of coming back to the founding of how we got started as a firm and why the two words, white men, are in the name of our company, that group, I think, is integral to creating inclusive because they've largely seen themselves outside of the realm of being inclusive themselves. It's been about everybody else, so it sets up this either-or. It's either us or them, which, again, I don't think is sustainable.
1: So it's the us-or-them us mentality of the white men. Is that what you're saying? And
2: Yeah, well, we've, we've seen that in this election, um, that Mr. Trump has, through some magical process, uh, has galvanized a, a group of uh of voters who are been disenfranchised in the process and um and also through what i would say is um really demonizing others sort of created a coalition which is in some ways uh very unsettling uh as because it's also created you know it's, it's spread the the seeds of of hate and fear um as a way of trying to marginalize other people in order to have people have some hope, it's 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 not a it's not a sustainable proposition. Coming back to the business world, it's certainly not good for the business bottom line to be able to sort of turn people against one another. Uh, the the, contra- the or the 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 antidote to that, uh, at least in our work, and this is moving away from the election and looking back in a business realm, is that when employees understand their mutual self-interest in creating a more sustainable culture that's inclusive, that's engaging, that's whatever, um, they become much more likely to be a part of the change process itself. So in other words, when this a rising tide needs to float all vo- boats, and that's not a Pollyannish way of saying, let's just sort of watch the sunset and sing kumbaya together on the upper deck, um, but it is to recognize that there are differences in how we perceive uh, equity, parity, et cetera, and that by not addressing those, all that is doing is putting a cosmetic Band-Aid in a, on a fairly deep scar and, and wound.
1: So how do you do that specifically with WMFDP in terms of addressing those issues?
2: Yeah, well, we work, first of all, with leadership. This is a, a, we've discovered in our 20 years of work. It's a top-down issue. It has to start at the top. Um, And it's not simply by giving senior leaders talking points uh, because those come off as uh, non-believable. They're not authentic. They're not genuine. So we really work at the behavior level. And behind behavior is mindset. And we really help leaders to look at what is the assumptions, unconscious assumptions, implicit bias that they harbor, that they're unaware of, not because they're bad people, but because they just don't know that they don't know, which ultimately includes all of us. And how does this unconscious mindset, how do these assumptions are impacting their behavior, which are leading them to um, not have the type of culture where the employee base feels valued, hurting, and uh, respected?
1: (laughs) Well, as a social worker, Bill, it's sort of, it has that kind of like, you're sort of, it's therapy for corporations. It sounds like, as you're describing it anyway, they have to become aware, they're not aware of what they're doing, um, and not aware of the, in the, uh, ramifications of what they're doing in terms of the company. So specifically, in this kind of a scenario, you go into a company like uh, Coca-Cola or Starbucks, and what do you actually do? Like, what do you do? Are you talking with the CEO? Are you working with HR? How do you? How does it actually functionally, in terms of how you accomplish your goal? What are you doing in the company?
2: Right. Um, typically, and there is no typical, but I would say more likely than not, the entry point uh, is usually um, through uh, some work with some part of senior leadership. Sometimes it's the intact C-suite team, but oftentimes it's more of a, a business unit where there is a visible senior leader who is noticing a disparity between where he or she wants their organization to be in terms of a behavioral piece, in terms of how people feel their employee engagement survey uh, scores suggest that there's, there's something amiss. And they also realize that this is not a training issue. We're not gonna just sort of throw a four-hour program at a systemic issue. And so our best uh, c- our clients over the decades Have been those that have taken a long-term approach to this. So, what we'll do is we'll go in and we'll do a uh, we'll 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 do what I call a viral adoption approach. We'll take a small group of uh, leaders, sometimes in the same organization, oftentimes in the same organization, and many times across a broad bandwidth from senior leaders down to mid-level leaders. And we'll have a a shared learning experience. It's usually an off-site. Uh, multi day experience where we look at um, some of the assumptions that they have been holding, some of the implicit and biased in other words, we take the cover off of what it is that they know that they don 't know that they don 't know, and we do that in a way that 's not assaultive that 's not diminishing that 's not uh, accusatory, but at the same time, it's still looking at regardless of you don't intend this, you don't, you're not trying to do this, and purposely, your unconscious behavior is having the exact opposite result on employee engagement than you wish. And as one of the senior executives that we worked with once said, he said, uh, because people will say, "Gosh, I don't, we don't have you know four days for this time," and. He said, "Listen, if I knew this about my employees, four days is a small price to pay in order to be able to sort of do to start at least start some corrective action to um, shift culture. And shift culture is not a uh, a training initiative; it's a ongoing, multi-month, year endeavor." <laughs>
1: Are there similarities among the companies that say you've worked with over the years when you talk about the shift culture? Like you see similarities and you're saying, cause they say, well, gee, well, at some point you say they weren't aware of, of, of the, I guess the attitudes, um, and that are impacting on not good business practices, but at, at some point they had to invite you in because they thought what bottom line it, it's, it's, they could do better financially if they addressed what issues.
2: Well, that, that's certainly one of the motivators sometimes. There's a, there's a business imperative related to profitability, related to whatever their metrics are that they're measuring. Other times there they, there are low employee engagement scores in their surveys that they do every year or two. Um, and other times leaders are just uh, recognizing that um, a high-performing organization is a little bit like you know, doing maintenance on your car. If you just run your car and don't change the oil, at some point it stops working. And in organizations, you've got to sort of do preventative uh, maintenance and developmental maintenance for the soul, heart, and mind of your employee base so that they're able to uh, really communicate more effectively with one another and, and uh, be able to harness the incredible – Innovation and creativeness that come out of the collective human uh, experience uh, when we really sort of hear each other deeply and and differently.
1: So you're talking about it's not a kumbaya experience. We have to reiterate that. And as you say, it has to be these are companies you want to help them create sustainable, and I guess sustainable is a key word, an inclusive work culture. So this is over time. So I assume that you're measuring. Every six months, every year, uh, measuring the climate of the company and also the, the 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 as I said the bottom line in terms of has that gotten better um, or what are the the markers that you take a look at over time?
2: Yeah, I, the, I mean one of the markers is uh, is certainly um, senior leadership. Can we've we've got four or five clients that have been working with us for seven years or longer. So, the fact that these systems continue to invest in the development of their leadership uh, is is one indicator if they 're saying it works, they keep coming back to us. Uh, another marker a um, few years back, probably five, six years ago, the organization based on a New York City catalyst, which is uh, i 'm sure you 're aware of been around for fifty years incredible research organization that has looked at the role of women in business around the globe. Uh, came into one of our client systems, Rockwell Automation, out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and did a study of white male managers uh, over a six-month time period and looked at changes in their behavior and their relationship with their direct reports and found that through work that we were doing with this test group of about 125 white male managers, uh, a number of factors changed, one of which is the ability for them to listen. Uh, I know one of your earlier callers in the last couple of months, a woman doing research about brain research with men and women talked a little bit about how generally women women 's brains are are wired to be much more intuitive and empathetic than men 's brains and, but that doesn 't mean that men can 't be intuitive and empathetic, but that lots of times that skill set needs some additional uh, work, uh, sort of like going to a gym and, and, and getting a uh, you know, a private fitness instructor to work out. We, we don't all have the same bodies or need to work on the same things, and not all men have the same issues, obviously, because we're not a monolith. Um, but customizing that to be able to help leaders grow the capacity, their leadership capacity and empathy and intuition are two of many skills that good leaders, male or female, need to be effective in this global uh, economy.
1: So once you go into the company and you are working, as you say, on these specific skills that you really pinpoint and focus on them, um, have you, what would you say, if there been any like major surprises in terms of like something that you didn't expect, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, you've worked with a lot of the companies, Forbes 500 company, a Fortune 500 companies. Um, any examples of a company, you don't have to name the company, but like, wow, it was like a we didn't expect this. Uh, this is something new for us.
2: Um, I'd say one of the things that has been most rewarding in the work of the last 20, 20 years is seeing leaders uh, re, be reinvigorated, re-energized. Uh, and I think that comes from a, a connecting their heart to their head, uh, that this is not simply a rational lack of data issue, problem that we're going to solve, that there's an emotional complexity to equity and inclusion, and for many white men, particularly uh, upper class or middle upper class white men, the notion that basically America is a meritocracy, in other words, if you just work hard enough, anybody can make it here, and it's simply that's it. Um, There's myth to that meritocracy, while certainly this is an incredible country that allows people who work hard to prosper, there's also some systemic impediments that uh, many of my colleagues who don't look like me have routinely experienced, not just at work, but in their life in general. And while that may not be personally my fault for me not to understand that and just to say, I'm going to just coach you, I'm going to mentor you, and I'm just going to teach you what I've done and think that that's somehow good enough, um, that really doesn't cut it. And watching these white men come to understand that uh, and to be energized and to say, wow, there's a whole different way I can mentor my employee base uh, and not just, you know, not just practice the golden rule, I'm just going to teach them what I've done and think that that's somehow good enough. That's been really um, very rewarding to see that happen routinely across lots of different industries
1: that's exciting because i always and this this is not fair but there's this like well here are these white men and sometimes old white men why do they want to give up their power why would they want to do that in the first place i mean how do you get them to see that this is going to be advantageous for them for their company and also and i think you mentioned this uh for society i mean how i mean the lack of diversity in corporate america also was a reflection of of uh, uh it affects society in a very negative way as well. Maybe you can talk about that.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, almost eight years ago uh, this next month, I had the privilege of being in D.C. for President Obama's first inauguration and leading up to that, we were, my wife and I were walking around D.C. the day prior to the inauguration and we got to overhear a number of conversations uh, with multi-generational families, many of which happened to be black. And I would listen into grandparents talking to their seven and eight year old granddaughters and grandsons about with tears in their eyes saying they thought they never thought in their lifetime they'd see a black man in the White House. And I think that was startling to hear that, but for me it was a realization saying all I've ever seen in the White House is someone who looks like me. And uh, while I sort of intellectually understood that, I had not emotionally realized what the depth of, of that sort of repeated reality particularly had in my life and many other white people's lives in this country where while I will never be the president of this country, it has also always opened up the notion that if I can dream it, I can do anything that I want. Uh, so I've had this tenacious put my head down, go after it mindset, literally from when I was four years old through now into my early 60s, which I realize is not something that's shared and I, I also think that I contrast that against some of the work that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in his book *Blink*, where he looked at, <clears throat> you know, the number of uh, the disproportionate number of not just white men in CEO roles in our country, but the number of six foot two or taller fit white men, disproportionate to the number of fit six-foot-two white men in the general population of white men, which then would lead you to believe that only fit, tall white men can be CEOs, which, of course, is just a fallacy. I mean, it's just it's ludicrous. And yet that's somehow the image of what a successful corporate leader needs to look like. So it's a little, it's a little sort of disingenuous to say that we somehow always hire and promote the best person when they look a particular, not only skin color, but a particular body type and then height on top of that. Uh, That's so so true. We needed
1: to get Michael Bloomberg up up there. He um, (laughs) he, he's short, but you know. But I'm I'm glad you brought.
2: I'm sorry. It's really important to say to white men at this point who might be listening. This is not an indictment, or somehow that you've again caused this again. This is not your personal fault. Um, I I believe at least of the work that we do with the leaders that we get to work with, people don't wake up in the morning and say, how badly can I come into work and make my colleague feel diminished, invalidated, and unheard? We've done a good job of getting egregious forms of mistreatment out of the workplace. Yes, they still happen, but, but most organizations have pretty good policies and procedures to get that stuff out. I'm talking about the stuff that I do from a place of positive intent, or other people do from a place of positive intent, that they don't even realize that they're having this negative impact on colleagues. That when, that's, when we can interrupt that, that changes fundamentally how people come to work and how they feel about putting this time into you know, that, that thing that we call work that occupies so many uh, uh, mindsets of Americans.
1: And I think the point also that you made, and I don't want to lose that point because when you were in Washington with your... Uh, with your wife and you're looking around and you're talking to black families in different generations and now they see a, a black man as president of the United States and how important that is. I felt very strongly that that was important for women in terms of having Hil- of, of electing Hillary as president of the United States. And one thing that always bothered me, and I don't know if you've had this discussion, is that particularly maybe the millennials or the younger people said, well, it doesn't really make a difference uh, whether she's a, a man or a woman. And, and my contention, yes, it does make a difference. It changes everything if you have a woman as president of the United States. Well, not only do we not have a woman, but we have an old white guy again. But uh, it's so I, I think I'd like you to, kind of address that in terms of, of there's something there that we, perhaps as a country, are, are not ready to elect a woman as President of the United States or as Commander-in-Chief.
2: Well, we're not going to have enough time, Catherine, to even get into that. But you know, <laughs> That's my last suffice, question. <laughs> but suffice to say that, you know, this, process we just went through that some called an election for me was so disheartening disheartening and and um i just behaviorally what senator clinton had to endure no man would ever have to go through that uh and yet and and then sort of what she got called and i think that um i was particularly struck on a number of things but Her waiting to the following morning to give the concession speech, my read on that and looking at different news sources, that she wanted to do that when young girls were awake so that they could hear that their hopes to aspire to whatever it is that they want to do um, are important. I really handed her uh, that, and as a a grandparent of two granddaughters, um, it's really important for me that little girls and little boys yet to grow up in a country where they kept the dream to go after whatever it is that they want to go after. And unfortunately, for lots of uh, compelling and conflicting reasons, the messages are still not the same. We have a lot more work
0: to do.
1: Yeah, You particularly have a lot more work to do because, <laughs> I mean, it would seem to me, I mean, that, I mean we. Talk, I mean, we're talking about diversity within these companies, corporate America, but to me, of course, as a woman, this whole gender inequality just is just, a, you know, stands out. But um, what now you talked about that you're doing a lot more work, this was sort of, I think this was off the air, but globally, uh, that things are beginning to happen in companies around the world that are beginning to change things. And there's more interest in diversity in companies and upper level management can, uh, so can you talk, address that? issue. Yeah,
2: you know, I think the, the emanation of that comes back to the fact that um, business leaders in all global companies recognizing that they, their, their ability to be successful is tied totally to the quality of their workforce. And they can't simply be turning over, you know, four rocks in a field of a hundred and thinking they're getting the most qualified, best people. They've got to turn over all those rocks. So the sense of, uh, you know, finding top talent and thinking that top talent is only in 50% of the population, again, is another myth. So globally, we're seeing companies um, take on gender equity, uh, usually more predominantly as, a, as an issue, uh, because it's sim- seemingly a little less complex in a global marketplace to start talking about some of the uh, complexities related to men and women at work. Um, and so we've had the pleasure in the last 18 months of doing work in China, India, Singapore, a lot in Europe, as well as, of course, North America. And, um, and this, is, this is, you know, when you're talking about gender equity, you're, you're t- really talking about inclusion in general, because it's a, it's a gateway into how we are vastly both similar as humans on the planet, but also at the same time different. And getting men and women to look at those similarity differences helps them to see the monolith, and mo- uh, not the monolith, but the mosaic of talent that is already in the system that they're underutilizing because they're sort of uh, you know, expecting everybody to sort of act in the same you know, prescribed behavioral manner. Uh, so it actually opens up uh, the ability of not just women to succeed at work, but men as well.
1: We talked. Right, you mentioned China. Give us an example in China. How how you would you approach this? How do you approach a company in China, for instance? Given your examples.
2: Well, it's interesting you pick China because I'd say of all the places I've been in the last couple of years, <clears throat> it's for me as an American it's been the most challenging and complex place, place for me to be. My work in China started first with the fact that one of the things that as an American I always have to be weary of and conscious of is that the rest of the world sees me first as an American, and then they're expecting me secondly to then basically tell them what to do, uh, which is similar to sort of how our country has operated for uh, a number of decades, if not centuries, going around the globe. And so there's some humility that has to come, first of all, saying here's a, here's a society and civilization, civilization that's 5,000 years plus old, and I'm from a civilization that's about you know 250 um, or so. And so the first thing that uh, I I did is I did a lot of sort of re-education myself about sort of the the recent and long-term Chinese history, looking at uh, Mao, who, when uh, communism came in in the 40s, uh, there was largely gender equity went away. I mean, he leveled the playing field, I mean, in one fell swoop, and there's still that mindset that, you know, Chinese, these leaders said, we don't have this issue here. Well, that was interesting because that contradicted with Chinese research that I had discovered by a lot of women researchers in Chinese universities that said actually there's a growing gap between men and women in business in China. And it's complex like it is everywhere, uh, but one of the interesting stats that came up was because of the one-child policy that the Chinese government had for an, a number of years, there was, a—I think, uh, the number I had was about 117 men for every 100 women. But yet, if you were a female and you weren't married by the age of 27, there was a Chinese term, which I don't have right now, that was translated into, they were called leftover women. So there was a lot of pressure for women to be married in their late 20s, which, of course, men didn't have. Um, and... Uh, this really got in the way of women being able to sort of realize the same dreams that their male counterparts were particularly related to business. So anyway, the where we the work that we did with the group in China which was working for a US company is where we did, did find some connection points is that they saw themselves as uh, a company that was working for an American company. So we started there and then sort of worked our way back around into gender because they, as a group of men and women, they initially were very uh, reluctant to think that they had any gender issues because of the history of the recent history of modern China.
1: Uh, that's a, I'm glad that I did pick China. Uh, actually, I'd like to hear about the rest of them. Also, we have to say goodbye um, So I want to make sure that everybody who wants to have and know more information about what you are doing, give us the website that we can go to.
2: Sure. Our website is wmfdp.com. Pretty simple. The initials of our company, White Men as Full Diversity Partners. We've chosen to work primarily in the corporate global arena because we haven't given up on NGOs and governments, but we've found that corporations, because of profit motive, are more inclined to want to make rapid change and we get to work with some of the most courageous leaders on the planet who are willing to stand in the middle of the fire and to be profitable to be able to go out and uh, recruit and then retain top talent that is of both genders and all ethnicities religions ages etc on down the line well
1: Bill Proudman and you should be proud of the work that you are doing. Founder of White Men as Full Diversity Partners. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
2: Catherine, I'm pleasure Catherine. to be with you. Thanks so much.
1: I'm your social worker with a microphone, Catherine Zox, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time,
0: 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology
0: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Rich Guerin, PhD, author and advocate, and the title of his new book is Felling Big Trees. Felling Big Trees is the story of disgraced Congressman Fran Stewart as he turns to the American heartland to find redemption in the eyes of his daughter and the woman he loves, the woman who taught him to hope again. Rich Guerin received both his M.A. and Ph.D. in politics from NYU. New York University, and began a career on Capitol Hill that lasted more than 25 years. The last six of those years, serving as chief of staff for the Committee on International Relations in the U.S. House of Representatives. He currently chairs the CERV, Outreach and Mission Committee at the Emmanuel Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia, and coordinates the homeless ministry with an emphasis on those living in the woods. And all proceeds from this book, his new book, will benefit whyhunger.org. Welcome to the show, Rich. Nice to have you on this morning.
0: Thank you very much. Good morning, Catherine. How are you?
1: Good. Uh, My first question is about your book. How much of your book is your own, or incorporates, I guess, your own personal journey?
0: Well, I, I believe that having been on Capitol Hill for 25 years, there are a lot of experiences uh, that uh, you kind of incorporate uh, into your way of looking at things, and uh, I, I tried in this book to um, kind of get into the human side of what goes on up on the Hill and, and uh, the people up there uh, and the, the jobs that they do. Um, there's no dirty bombs or assassination plots or that it's it's more of the uh day-to-day things that go on uh, up on the hill and uh sometimes they're kind of mundane but uh, a lot of mundane things that we do and experience in life and um <clears throat> they uh sometimes <clears throat> pardon me can be uh can be kind of interesting when you look at it um it's also um a uh Kind of a, a, a shot of uh, or sketch of uh, what this particular congressman uh, decides to do uh, when when he leads uh, leaves the hill, um, and just trying to blend into uh, small town America, as it were, and um, he meets uh, a number of different characters that um, <clears throat> kind of give him the opportunity to view things from a perspective that. Uh, maybe he had not embraced before.
1: Yeah, so it's a very different perspective than being up on the hill and then going into the woods. Um, You know, you mentioned maybe just I want to, you mentioned the mundane, because you've been on the hill for Mm -hmm. 25 years. Is it really mundane? I mean, because as a layperson, I think, oh, my goodness, there's all this stuff going on from day to day, and it's all just, uh, you know, kind of the razor's edge, and um, I, I don't think of it as mundane. Um, right. So, yeah.
0: Well, well, I, I, and and maybe mundane might not be the the word. It's Basically, types of things that uh, people do, whether you're up on the hill or not. Uh, you want to make sure that you get a uh, a call home to um, uh, see if the kids have uh, done their homework uh, and uh, to check in uh, with what the family's doing um, and uh, just uh, try to. Get involved maybe with uh some some different activities that remind you of being home uh you know the the folks up there um have to do a lot of flying and and driving during the week uh they're up there for business but then they have to go home and in most cases uh the family uh the family is at home and uh oftentimes uh the problems that the children may have uh uh, i can remember uh being uh, in a in a hearing many many years ago uh when uh, that Geraldine Ferraro was chairing and uh she got a call and she had to take it and uh it involved her uh, one of her children and she had to spend some time on it and um so it's it's that type of thing uh, i think um but also uh, and this novel takes place in the uh, 90s. Um, as you think about the family and you think about uh, those type of things, uh, there are also some pretty big picture issues that they were were facing. Uh, Bosnia at the time, uh, Rwanda, um, uh, you know, the, the remnants, <clears throat> the fallout of the collapse of the Soviet Empire, so these uh, more personal things are kind of juxtaposed uh, against these uh, much uh, larger um, national security, uh, big-picture issues.
1: So what was it like for you? I mean, Chief of Staff for the Committee on International Relations in the House of Representatives. What was it like? I mean, how—
0: <laughs> Well, I— want the inside story. I started as an intern. Uh, I'm originally from New York, and I started I, as an intern— uh, with Congressman Ben Gilman, who was in uh orange county uh and uh we recently lost him uh, He passed away a week ago last saturday um and uh ninety four years old uh but i as I say i started one uh one summer as an intern I was still working on my dissertation uh we had two children uh, at home <laughs> excuse me and um uh, my wife uh, was was taking care of them and uh... then i became his chief of staff in the office uh... and then was over on the uh, what at the time was the foreign affairs committee and we were in the minority uh, the, the republicans until nineteen ninety four uh... were in the minority Uh they, then in ninety four there was a change in the republicans um Became the majority. So we had to learn pretty quickly as to how to conduct hearings, how to uh, run different investigations, how to do a lot of administrative things that we had never had to do before. Um, the office I had uh, while I was in the minority that looked out on uh, a, a back wall and a, and a great. Uh, all of a sudden uh, when we became majority, I got a very nice office that looked out onto a beautiful courtyard with a very nice fountain
1: <laughs> so they changed the carpet, new furniture, and <laughs>
0: absolutely absolutely <You're- laughs> yeah
1: and what and then I, I of course that that changes everything well and so uh for and for you. Uh, Like, specifically, what were you then? I mean, here you are, you are in the majority, so obviously
2: there are...
0: Well, we were responsible for um, uh, conducting hearings, uh, determining what witnesses uh, would come up. Uh, Madeleine Albright was the Secretary of State at the time, and uh, um, we were dealing with a a number of, of issues. I refer to the breakup of the Soviet Union. There were hearings there. Um, We did a lot of traveling um, with uh, various congressional delegations, and then we uh, also had staff delegations uh, that uh, we uh, organized. Um, Another issue at the time uh, that we were facing was Haiti. We uh, traveled a number of times to Haiti, a number of times to Bosnia. Uh, I was in Rwanda about... um, About three weeks after the massacre, and it was a a presidential uh, delegation that went over there. And so you got to see uh, firsthand what was going on, and that was uh, very important as you uh, conducted hearings uh, to have uh, people who could um, provide information and reports to the members of Congress uh, that uh, served on the committee. There were about 46 members that served on the committee.
1: Well, so did you feel, now that you're, uh, your party was in power, did you feel more powerful? Did you feel less, or did you feel, I mean, I'm assuming maybe you feel more Im- impotent when you are not the pop- the party in power. Um, for you personally, uh, was there a, a big change in the way you did your work or the way you conducted yourself? Uh,
0: I, I think so. I mean, I, I guess if there's any measure of... Um, People wanted to try to get in touch with them if it 's uh, well this is again going back to the 90s, so we had those little yellow phone message pads. Uh, I remember coming back from New York the night of the election and uh, coming into the office and uh, having a stack of about uh, fifty messages <laughs> which i wouldn 't <laughs> have had if I had uh, you know still been in in the minority but so it's it 's the type of thing where um, you do, uh, there's, there's a lot of responsibility that you have and, um, uh, it's, it's the type of thing where, uh, when you are in the minority, um, you, you always, uh, you don't get what you're interested in, uh, for the most part and, uh, you try to work together, um, as much as you can and, uh, so there was a real change.
1: So there's a real different change in your mindset, it would seem. I mean, as you're describing it, a change in attitude. Um, And that has to, I would assume, affect the work that you do or the choices that you make, maybe. Um, Public service, I mean, that's what it's all about. What would you say was in terms of your work in public service? Because that's a long time, 25 years. Uh, What's the best thing you did? Maybe what are some of the things that if you can talk about them, that you may regret something you wished you had done that you hadn't done, given all that time, because that is a lot mm-hmm. of time. To right, yeah. Uh,
0: I I think that uh, one of the things that we did, and and again, uh, I, I was a, a staffer and I was working for a chairman, and and he had things that he was interested in. Uh, one of the things that he was most interested in uh was uh the hunger and, and poverty issues uh we uh have got plenty in the united states but uh, our purview and and uh, charge was uh was overseas and we traveled to a lot of countries um looked at a lot of different programs and um uh we uh, had had early on uh this is during the carter administration um, with uh, work uh, with Harry Chapin and the organization that he founded uh, World Hunger year, but which is now why hunger um, did some did some fantastic uh, works work uh, Harry was a real inspiration uh, to a lot of members up there and uh, i I think there was some uh, really good work done and uh, his organization uh, as they say why hunger has been out on the front lines, uh, battling hunger for the last 40 years, and, and, uh, there's some very good people there, and, and that's why I decided to, uh, donate the, uh, the proceeds, um, to, uh, to, uh, why hunger. Some of the things <clears throat> I regret, um, there, there are a number of different things that you would, that you would like to do, um, but you just, can 't get all the moving pieces of members and interests and calendars uh, together, and um, even when you think that there 's a good chance that you 're going to get an important uh, piece of legislation through um, there 's something that just uh, it runs into, and it it just doesn 't happen um, oftentimes you can try again, uh, but it's it 's difficult it's um, I think as they say. <clears throat> You don't—they uh, like in uh, legislation, uh switch, and making uh, to uh, sausage making. There's a uh, there's a lot of different things that that go into um, the grist mill, as it were, and um, it's uh, it's not always uh, a product that uh, you had hoped for.
1: Well, it's interesting because when they talk about well say this election and 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 the new president uh it's sort of and, and maybe it's the way the press writes about it because that's and and that's why I'm really curious as to 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 what you have to say, but it, it almost sounds like well, some of the things that say Mr. Trump wants to do are sort of a fait accompli this is this is he wants it this way, this is the way it's going to be, and that's the way the public reacts to it and I'm thinking, well, we do have a congress, don't we, and we do have a Senate, yes it um and they don't seem to fit that into the picture at least that's not the you know in we get this kind of sensational way of of, uh, of viewing how the government works
0: right no i think you're 100 percent correct um now the, we we do have uh, are going to have a republican president uh and republican senate and republican house um now that does not mean that there could be divisions uh within the republican party um I, I know um I had to deal with that at different times um and, and there would be uh something that you thought uh was going to go through but it turned out that uh there were a handful of members that uh, might be needed to get something through and uh well they might be members of the same party um they were kind of uh working with different themes and um and uh, different points of reference, as it were. And um, just because you were in the same party did not mean that they were looking at the issue from the uh, same perspective.
1: So, how does it work? Let's say you're a Republican, you want something that maybe is viewed as more on the Democratic agenda, and you vote for something as a Republican but it seems to be something that more Democrats want. How do the people or how do the other senators view you? I mean, is there a lot of backlash? or, um, I mean, I know it's not always the same, but there has to be some kind of a atmosphere that prevails in those kinds of situations.
0: Well, <clears throat> I think for the most part, um, the, uh, the chairman that I worked for um, was recognized as somebody who tried to be very bipartisan in his approach. He tried to uh, look at uh, issues that were important to members of of both parties uh, and if possible, he tried to meld um, them and uh, into a legislative package and um, and tried to work with them um, now the again as I say uh, the legislative processes Probably a lot different than what you read about in some of the uh basic textbooks um, It's a long way to the finish line, and uh I saw at times where there were measures that were great measures that we worked with, and uh we were very happy and um But then we found out that there were i'll take for instance um, in a particular senator might say, "See that that bill is going through." And he's got a pet project um, that he wants to put on that bill, Uh, he he says, I'm not going to support your bill unless you put my pet project on that bill. And so that might get him on board, uh, but that may be objectionable to other people who have supported the original legislation. Uh, Where you end up is oftentimes it's right down to the final minutes, seconds sometimes, of trying to make deals and and getting things through.
1: It sounds arduous (laughs) at best. (laughs) Now I understand why you are currently in uh, Woodbridge, Virginia. Coordinating the homeless ministry. Let's switch to that because that's a 180 from what you've been describing.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Well, it uh, it did stem stem from some of the interest that I did uh, develop on the Hill. Uh, But um, I had uh, retired, and uh, my uh, daughter was work. Excuse me. My my daughter was working, and um, so I watched. her first child and watch her second child her third child and so finally they are in school full time so i uh was was doing some work uh w- with our church uh we had started uh, back in the 80s um, a revolving uh, hypothermia uh, shelter. Uh, in essence, uh, one church would house from 7 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning uh, a group of homeless people at the end of the week uh, materials and that would go to the next church and that was the beginning actually of uh, one of the shelters uh, that has been established uh, down here. Um, we, uh, I had never really had much work with folks in the in the woods. Uh, We brought some food down to them one time, and that's very important. I think there are a lot of churches, a lot of different groups that go down there and show the flag, but as we started uh, thinking about that, um, you recognize that the people in the woods, um, while they're homeless people, they're still people, and we got to know some of them. Uh, we, We saw the um, you know the the, the very uh, difficult circumstances that they were in and uh, actually we were able to get uh, two uh, men out of the woods um, uh, they were getting some benefits um, because of their disabilities and through uh, mm-hmm. gift letters that our church provided to a an apartment um, a complex that was willing to work with them and there weren't many uh, that were willing to do that. Um, so we have two people that uh, one was basically um, he really was at the proverbial uh, death store there. And uh, he is uh, still uh, has some um, uh, condition that uh, he's got to be helped with in that. Uh, but uh, we have two people that uh, are not out in in the cold. Um, we also have uh, several other people that we work with and um, uh, come to our church. And I think what we decided to do was to go deep and 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 not and, and try to do as much as we could for maybe two three people as opposed to trying to uh bring different things down and and hand out items periodically to uh you know, most of the people that were down there. So we're still so thinking um we're we're certainly not experts on this. Um I have through trial and error for the past year um uh subjected <laughs> subjected myself as it were to uh trying to get through all the Medicaid, Medicare red tape and uh it's it's mind-boggling, and um, well, you know what you have
1: to do. You just have to hire more social workers to do that. That's well, I think
0: you're 100 <laughs> percent correct. I mean, yeah. uh, when when I talk to some of them, and most of the people, whether it's uh, in a government agency or a nonprofit, I think they're very well-meaning, but they're they're just overwhelmed. I, I refer all back to uh, the one individual that we got out of the woods. Um, he, he really uh, he went. He went into a transition, uh, transitional housing uh, in uh, the winter, and he wasn't able to stay there because of his medical concerns. He was back in the woods, and so we traded the cold of uh, January for the uh, brutal heat down here in the Washington area of uh, July. And as I called around trying to get help for him, uh, we found some people who said, yeah, we'll, we'll be able to help. Um, but, uh, and I said, well, that's great. And they said, yes, but, uh, there's a two year waiting list to get into a facility. Um, I then went to somebody else and, um, I, uh, asked about help. It seemed like they had some, uh, but they said he does, he has to have a fixed address. Um, so that brought us to looking for an apartment and, uh, we were blessed that we were able to find one, but, um. Yeah, I think we need some more resources and um it's uh, there's there's just a lot of people out there whose needs are not getting uh, met um and oftentimes uh, they're in uh, situations where um you're looking at uh, mental uh, health issues, you're looking at substance abuse, um, uh, you're looking at uh, criminal records where Um, The other day I was trying to help someone uh, get a job, and they ran a background check on him, and he has uh, a number of crimes uh, that he's committed, so-called barrier crimes, I guess, to getting a job. So oftentimes um, these folks uh, have no option but to uh, go out and panhandle.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I'm glad you brought that up. And that's maybe our last point, because we only have about a minute and a half left. Uh, But I think people sometimes look at homeless people, and they have this attitude, well, if they would just clean up and get a job, that's all they need to do, which obviously is not true. And you mentioned several reasons. I mean, the poor health, chronic health problems, addictions, arrests, job losses, we didn't even mention divorce, but all of those kinds of things. And some people suffer from all of it. So it's all of our responsibility, I think, to help them. But um, and, and you're certainly doing the job. I want to mention, uh, uh, obviously, your book again, uh, which is Felling Big Trees. And we're talking to Rich Guerin, Ph.D., the author of Felling Big Tre- uh, Felling Big Trees. Do we go to FellingBigTrees.com for more information about the book and you? Uh,
0: yes, I actually have a, uh, a website, uh, com and uh, you can... Certainly uh, look at that or twitter uh, uh, rich underscore uh, Garen, and uh, there's also a, a a facebook page so uh we're we're hoping that uh, we can uh, do some work with this. this book is actually going to be part of a series uh writing for change uh, we're looking at hunger and the the next I have two other manuscripts uh, and they may be devoted to uh, some of the other problems that we face
1: right. You're doing great work. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.